0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hi, this is David Rutledge with you for The Philosopher's Zone. Welcome to the program. I live in a part of Australia where there's a lot of bush, and in that bush and in the garden and all around the place, there's a rather intimidating species of ant. Uh, people call them jack jumpers, and they're kind of a menace. They're, they're really big, they're super aggressive, they, they jump towards you rather than away from you, and they have a very painful sting which can cause anaphylactic shock. People sometimes die from jack jumper stings. So the other day I was walking along and I saw something moving in the undergrowth, and I looked and it was two jack jumpers carrying a dead bee. One of them had the front half of the bee and the other one had the back half and I I guess they were carrying it back to their nest. And on one hand I felt sorry for the bee, like you feel sorry for anyone that loses an argument with a jack jumper, but at the same time I felt kindly disposed towards the ants, which were engaged in what seemed to me to be a cooperative enterprise, like they were helping each other. And that got me thinking about the nature of cooperation in the way that we usually use the term, how it involves some sort of planning and some degree of conscious deliberation, and whether or not we can say that insects like ants are really capable of any of these things. Well, all this has been on the mind of my guest this week. He's been thinking about insect consciousness, insect sentience, and not just in an abstract way. As you may know, insect farming is an industry that's starting to get a lot of attention because, according to its advocates, it can deliver edible protein to humans in large quantities without the damaging environmental consequences of livestock farming. And all of that sounds fine until you begin to ask questions about whether or not insects are sentient beings, and if they are, what it means to farm them in the way that they're starting to be farmed. Jeff Sebo is a philosopher who's currently working in environmental studies and bioethics, medical ethics, and animal studies at New York University, and he joins me now. Jeff, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's begin with a quick overview of insect farming, the insect protein industry. How advanced is this industry? How, how big is it?
0: This industry is much bigger than I think many of our listeners would expect because insect farming might not be on the top of our minds when we think about animal farming. But in fact, there are already lots of insect farms out in the world, tens of thousands, and several companies are currently developing facilities that could individually farm Nearly a trillion insects per year, and this industry is poised to grow uh, very, very fast over the next decade or so. It could be about fifty times as large in in ten years as it already is now. So we could be looking at a future where trillions and trillions of insects are farmed per year.
1: And you take issue with with the word farm, right? With the phrase insect farming.
0: Why is that? Well, I think the term farming connotes green pastures and and traditional plant and animal farming where animals are allowed to roam free and live relatively natural lives and and be treated with care individualized care and of course then used for food or milk or eggs this is of course not ideal for animals either but increasingly animal farming including for animals such as cows and pigs and chickens and fishes but also especially for insects does not at all resemble that ideal and instead looks much more like a large industrial facility where animals are are packed in in very high densities and uh, uh, bred and raised and transported and killed as economically efficiently as possible.
1: So what does that look like? I mean, what are the conditions like for the insects and how are they uh, harvested and, and processed when the time comes? So unfortunately, we don't know too much
0: about how insects are treated because, as is the case with a lot of industrial animal agriculture, people are somewhat tight-lipped about their own animal welfare standards, and there are various reasons for that. They might not want much public scrutiny, or they might want to protect proprietary information. But what we do know is that on the larger insect farms, insects are kept in very high densities in containers. and all of the environmental conditions are are very highly controlled. And then the insects are transported to the location where they are killed in various ways, in some cases by being vacuumed there, and then are killed in various ways. Methods of killing include being frozen to death or being boiled alive or being shredded to death. Uh, Obviously, this might be better for some insects than for others because some insects thrive more in dense living conditions than other insects, and they might feel less pain than, for example, cows and chickens and pigs would feel, especially under similar circumstances. But this is not a way of treating insects that allows us to pay attention to how individual insects are doing, and there's no reason to expect that this way of treating insects is going to be uh, fully compatible with them living happy and healthy, full insect lives, they're probably not only going to have their lives cut short, but be subjected to uh, lots of pain and suffering along the way.
1: And you point out that whether or not we should care about all of this depends on what we consider to be the moral status of insects. What sort of factors should we be considering when we try to determine that moral status?
0: Yeah, the first thing to say here, as you pointed out in the introduction, is that Right now, a lot of the ethical discussion about insect farming forgets about the insects. Most of the ethical discussion focuses on global health and environmental considerations. And of course, global health and environmental considerations are really important, but also important is animal welfare and animal rights. And if you want to consider the welfare or possible rights of insects alongside global health and environmental considerations, then you have to ask what kinds of features might make it the case that an individual animal has a welfare or has rights. And ordinarily in the animal ethics literature, we think that something like sentience, the capacity to consciously experience positive and negative states like pleasure and pain, or have uh, positive or negative uh, motivations like desires and preferences is at the very least sufficient for moral status. So if you can consciously experience pleasure and pain, happiness and suffering, If you can consciously have desires and preferences that could be satisfied or frustrated, then that is enough for you to have intrinsic final moral value. That is enough for you to morally matter for your own sake. So the question here is do we have sufficient reason to believe that insects might be sentient in that sense? If you think that is enough for moral status, do you think that insects plausibly could have what it takes?
1: And so, I mean, this is a big complex question, but just in a sort of a broad sense, how strong or, or how compelling is the scientific evidence for insect sentience?
0: Right now, the scientific evidence is extremely limited. And, and by the way, I should point out that the insect farming essay that led to this interview was co-authored with uh, my, my collaborator, Jason Shucraft, who, who works at uh, Rethink Priorities. And Jason is the person who answered most of these questions in the essay that we wrote together. So I certainly defer to him on the details. But what I have learned from him and from other people is that we currently know very little about insect minds. There are many, many, many kinds of insects out there. And of course, many, many individual insects too. And most existing research on insects focuses on a very small sample of this broader insect population. And while some of these findings might extend to other types of insects, too. Some of them might not. So that is one thing to keep in mind. But then we also know very little about even what this small sample of insects are like. We we have some studies, but not many. And of course, we can only learn so much from particular studies anyway, because of the problem of other minds, because of the fact that ultimately the only mind I have direct access to is my own. And so even when I learn about cognition and behavior and other kinds of animals, I still have to make guesses or inferences about uh, what, what it might be like to be an individual uh, undergoing that particular kind of cognition and behavior. But with all of that said, so so keeping in mind that we know very little, the current evidence is, is mixed. We have a lot of evidence in favor of the idea that insects could feel pleasure and pain or or have desires and preferences. For example, some insects seem to be susceptible to anhedonia, uh, which is a loss of motivation to engage in ordinarily pleasurable activities. Uh, And and they can also, in, in some cases, be treated with antidepressants. This is true of fruit flies, for example. Um, They also show signs of behavioral flexibility and social learning. For example, bees can learn from each other and they can solve problems creatively and flexibly. And insects also share some of the brain structures and some of the chemicals that we know are relevant to pleasure and pain experience in humans and other animals. Uh, At the same time, there is some evidence that pushes in the other direction. For example, some insects will continue going about their business even while being eaten alive or being injured in some other way that you might think they would notice and, and care about if they were sentient. So, so mantids, for example, will continue mating even when their mating partners are eating them alive. Uh, and insects can show signs of learning. For example, cockroaches can learn and, and still behave seemingly intelligently even after having been decapitated. So at the very least, insects operate very differently than humans do. And you might even think that those give us some evidence that they might not be sentient. So, so the evidence is limited and mixed.
1: So in the essay that you've co-authored in Eon magazine, which I should have mentioned at the top of the program, and I'll just in parentheses here say that it's a really good essay and we're going to put a link to it on the Philosopher's Zone website. In that essay, you're working with the notion that insects are about 20 to 40% likely to be sentient, which you quite rightly call a non-negligible chance. But then using that same metric, couldn't you also say that insects are more likely than not to be non-sentient? How would you respond to the claim that the moral case for treating insects as non-sentient is 60 to 80% defensible?
0: Right. Yeah. So uh, as you say, Jason and I, my co-author, assign a roughly 20 to 40% chance to the idea that insects are sentient. And I should say that that is a very rough estimate. But suppose for the sake of argument that we feel pretty confident that given the evidence currently available to us, insects are only 20 to 40% likely to be sentient. As you say, you could rephrase that by saying that insects are 60 to 80% likely to not be sentient and, and therefore to not have moral status at all. And my response to that is to say, fine, we can rephrase it that way, but it, it still follows, I think that we should morally consider our impacts on insects when deciding how to treat them because a 20 to 40% chance that someone is sentient and I might be harming them is a pretty high level of risk. Ordinarily, we think that that is definitely enough risk that we should consider it when making everyday decisions. I mean, consider this case. If I tell you, hey, so if you drink 10 beers and then drive, there is a 40% 40% chance that you are going to, to get into an accident and hurt somebody, maybe kill somebody, uh, would, would the right conclusion to draw be, well, hey, I'm more likely than not to not uh, uh, get into an accident and hit anybody. So I can, for all intents and purposes, just ignore that possibility and go ahead and happily drink and drive. No, of course not. If you have a 40% chance of of getting into an accident and and hurting or killing somebody, and if this is not a necessary thing to be doing if you have other ways to get yourself from point A to point B, then you should consider that 40% chance of causing harm unnecessarily as a factor in your decision-making. And, and in fact, it, the risk could be much lower. It could be a 1% chance. Uh, but but if, if the amount of harm that you would be causing is high, then even a 1% chance of causing that amount of harm should at least be a factor in your decision-making.
1: This is the Philosopher's Zone on RN with me, David Rutledge, and my guest this week is Jeff Sebo from New York University. As we mentioned earlier, Jeff Sebo is co-author of a very thought-provoking article in this month's edition of Eon Magazine that explores the possibility and the ethical implications of insect sentience, particularly when it comes to the business of farming insects for food. Details on the Philosopher's Zone website. you talk about considering the possibility that insects could be sentient before we decide to kill them but that's very different from talking about whether or not we should kill insects right do we or don't we that's a a yes no kind of decision and it's not clear to me how considering the possibility that insects might be sentient how that helps us to make that decision unless you're saying that we should err on the side of moral caution and not kill them is that what you're saying well, unfortunately not killing insects might not be an option because no
0: matter what we do, we probably are going to be killing lots and lots of insects. If if we grow plants out in the world, we might have to kill insects as part of plant agriculture and and if we raise animals for food, then we might have to kill insects as part of animal agriculture. So, no way of existing on this planet is probably going to allow us to avoid harming and killing insects, but we might still be able to harm and kill fewer of them. With some options than with other options. So the first thing to say is that as as is always the case in a world like this one, the goal should not be to eliminate the harm that we cause, but rather to minimize the harm that we cause, avoid causing unnecessary harm. Um, and and with that in mind, there are different ways you could approach it. You could, as you suggest, apply a precautionary principle and attempt to err on the side of caution and do no harm when in doubt, or you could apply something like expected utility theory, expected value theory. uh, And and that would involve multiplying the probability that insects are sentient by the amount of suffering that they would be experiencing if they were sentient. And then you could treat the product of that equation as the expected amount of harm that you are causing them. But one way or the other, either applying a precautionary principle and, and simply trying to do no harm where possible, or doing uh, expected utility analysis and and trying to come up with some sort of uh, harm benefit analysis that takes into account probabilities and, and utilities. Either way, all we are arguing is that you should consider their welfare when deciding what to do. Just consider it and then incorporate that into your moral system of choice. If you have a utilitarian consequentialist moral system, it might be a matter of weighing the the benefits against the harms and and doing the most good and the least harm possible. If you have a rights-based system, it might be a matter of not violating rights wherever that is possible, minimizing rights violations, perhaps. If you have virtue or care-based systems, it might look different. But all we are saying is consider your impacts on them, consider what you might be doing to them, and then incorporate that into the way that you ordinarily make moral decisions.
1: There's also the problem of how far sentience might turn out to extend, because I believe there's evidence in quantum physics that elementary particles could possess some sort of sentience. There's the question of artificial intelligence, AI systems, and whether or not they might one day be said to be sentient. We know that plants have some sort of sentience. The more creatures or or organisms or things that we admit into our moral community, the more difficult it becomes to live up to the perceived Moral responsibilities that result. I mean, I I guess maybe you've already answered that question partly in what you were what you were just saying. But is this something that? I mean, does this introduce something else into the into the picture?
0: Well, it it, it certainly is very inconvenient. We we might have preferred (laughs) to live in a world where morality would not be particularly demanding, or or where morality would not involve much uncertainty or cluelessness. But unfortunately, we find ourselves in this world, and in this world, if we really are seriously considering everyone who seems to merit consideration, what we discover is that morality is much more demanding and it involves much more uncertainty and cluelessness than we might have hoped or expected. And obviously, there should be limits to how demanding morality can be. In particular, morality should not require us to do the impossible, but it might be that we can extend moral consideration to insects and maybe many other uh, beings too without requiring so much of ourselves that what we require is impossible or unachievable or unsustainable. It might be simply a matter of um, extending equal consideration of interest to everyone who has a non-negligible chance of having interests and then doing harm benefit analyses and considering the rights they might have, and then making the decisions that uh, seem best all things considered after having really, really factored in everything. And if one day we decide that other types of beings too have a non-negligible chance of being sentient, maybe it is the right thing to extend consideration to them as well. We can right now draw a line between insects and other beings like plants or current generation artificial intelligences for the simple reason that insects appear to be much more likely to be sentient than plants and artificial intelligences at this stage. Uh, But, you know, that might not always be true. It might be that in a decade or two decades, artificial intelligences have advanced enough so that they are about as likely as insects, if not more likely as insects to be sentient. And at that point, I think it would be the right thing to do to extend uh, consideration to them as well. There, there could be more, more of them existing in simulations than there are insects right now. And, and so it would seem to matter a lot how we're treating them if, in fact, they might be capable of feeling something or thinking something consciously.
1: Well, we touched on this earlier in the program, but the, uh, the most persuasive arguments in favour of insect farming are the environmental ones. And if we can get our protein from insects, then we can wind back animal agriculture, which is a major contributor to climate change and environmental degradation. So if we're talking moral presumptions rather than requirements, couldn't we say that the certainty of helping the environment by insect farming outweighs the potential harm done to insects?
0: I think that is a reasonable suggestion. And how seriously you take it is going to depend, of course, on your broader moral theory. If, if you are a utilitarian or consequentialist who think we should aim to maximize happiness and minimize suffering by any means necessary, then certainly you will be open to harming or killing the few, or in this case, the very many, for the greater good. Whereas if you fall more on the rights theory end of the spectrum, then it would really matter uh, the, the details of your view would really matter. Would this would this be an impermissible kind of rights violation that is not justified by the greater good? So so I leave that to the, the rights theorists in, in the audience to figure out what they think about that. Um, but, but I do take that possibility seriously for the reason I said before, no way of living on this earth or even not living on this earth is harm-free. Uh, we are causing harm no matter what, and we need to take responsibility for that and try to minimize the harm that we cause, uh, and and that probably will mean accepting that we are going to be harming many, many insects and and other animals, no matter what, and and then just figuring out which way is is least bad. Um, now, with respect to the environmental point in particular, one thing that is important to note is, at least at present and for the foreseeable future, insect farming is not functioning as a replacement of traditional industrial animal agriculture. Instead, insect farming is functioning as a contributor to uh, traditional industrial animal agriculture. The the majority of insect products are actually being used as feed for other animals who we then kill and serve to humans. So so in particular, a lot of um, insects are currently being incorporated into fish meal for giant aquaculture uh, farmed fish um, facilities. And so we can debate whether a form of insect farming that actually functions as a true alternative to industrial animal agriculture and supports its elimination. We could debate whether that would be a good thing to have at least during a transition away from industrial animal agriculture. But right now, that is not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is a system that is directly contributing to industrial animal agriculture and actually making some of its inputs cheaper and so could actually contribute to its further expansion. And when you consider that, it seems clear that plant-based agriculture, um, including plant-based meat and possibly cultivated meat, meat made from uh, the cells of animals without having to harm or kill a living animal, those are all better not only in terms of animal welfare, but also in terms of global health and environmental issues at present.
1: You've done some really interesting work in the legal domain where you've advocated for the extension of legal personhood to non-human animals, in particular chimpanzees. And I mean, this is a very huge area of discussion, but just to take one slice of it, The law typically distinguishes between persons and things, and persons have rights while things don't, and things can be possessions while persons can't. And you're looking to move chimpanzees out of the thing category and into the person category. If you're advocating for the recognition of insects as sentient beings, or or at least saying that we should be folding the possibility of insect sentience into our decisions around how to treat them, how is that similar to, or, or perhaps different from, the argument for extending personhood to non-human animals and insects.
0: Thanks for asking about that. I, I think the question of legal personhood for animals is incredibly important, and and I really appreciate the way you framed it because a lot of people find it obvious that only humans can be persons because we use the words human and person interchangeably in ordinary uh, conversation. But it is really, really important to appreciate that in many legal contexts, that is not how the the term person functions. In many legal contexts, including in the United States, the term person, the concept person, simply refers to anyone who is capable of holding any legal rights at all. So essentially, it refers to any legal subjects. And so we divide the world into legal subjects who can have rights that are appropriate given their interests and needs and vulnerabilities and legal objects that cannot have any legal rights at all. And right now in the United States and and most other jurisdictions, we only count humans. And uh stand-ins for human interests like corporations as as persons as rights holders and everyone and everything else is a legal object that can be bought and sold and and used and and so on uh, with with of course some welfare protections in place for many non-human animals but not all of them and so when when we advocate for legal personhood for chimpanzees and elephants and other animals, what we are saying is these are clearly the types of beings who, if we are going to insist on saying that everyone is either a person or a thing, and there can be nothing in between, if we are going to insist on that kind of binary, then chimpanzees and elephants are the types of beings who should clearly be on the person side of that fence. Now, if you want to create a third or fourth or fifth category, if you want to complicate this uh, legal conceptual space, then we can consider that too. But while we exist in this binary persons versus object system, uh, chimpanzees and elephants should be persons. And actually, the New York Court of Appeals is going to be considering an elephant personhood case, I think, this fall, which is going to be a major moment for legal rights for animals. So, So stay tuned for that. Now, what do I think about insect personhood and insect rights? Well, ultimately, I do think that however we do it, we should create a legal system that allows us to treat. Any possibly sentient being as a legal subject with a welfare or rights that have some intrinsic uh value under the law. If insects have a non-negligible chance of being sentient, and if we think sentience is intrinsically morally significant, then we should take ourselves to have not only moral but also legal obligations to insects. We we should aspire to protect them or at least to not harm them uh, and, and to use the law as an instrument. For making sure that that happens. I, I, I do believe that. But if we do treat insects as legal subjects in one way or another, that is going to have to look very different from the way that we treat humans as legal persons and the way that we would treat chimpanzees or elephants as legal persons. There are just too many insects and insects are too unlike us uh, for, for the types of rights that we have to make sense for them. So we're going to have to go back to the drawing board and really rethink what kinds of legal status are possible and what it might take to respect the kind of legal status that insects should have. So ultimately, I don't think that expanding our moral and legal and political circle is going to be complete until our moral and legal and political circle um, includes in one way or another, every being who has a decent chance of having the capacities that we take to be intrinsically significant.
1: Well, it's going to be so interesting to see how all of this plays out. But uh, we are out of time. I'll just say, Jeff Sebo, it's been such a fascinating conversation. Thanks so much for coming on the program.
0: Oh, thanks so much for having me again. I really appreciate it.
1: And Jeff Sebo works in environmental studies, bioethics, medical ethics, and animal studies at New York University. More info on the website. That's the Philosopher's Zone. And you can find us via the RN website or the ABC Listen app. I'm David Rutledge that's it from me for this week but I uh, just wanted to mention that you can also hear me on RN's upcoming Big Weekend of Books on August 28th and 29th I'm going to be talking with two historians of race in America about the 1921 Tulsa massacre and its reverberations in American life and culture today. You'll find the Big Weekend of Books schedule on the RN website and we've got a lot of great listening planned for those two days. Thanks for your company this week. Bye for now.